Good evening. Welcome to the MAGI seminar and panel discussion about the realities of the industry that you're about to go into as practitioners of animation in all its forms. Um, I'm Kate Corley. I'm with the MAGI program and I'd like to introduce our fabulous, fabulous panel. We have Kelly Liner on the end who is from 12 Field Animation. She's a director of that company. We have Kylie, who I have to read your title, Kylie, because it's got so many fantastic words in it, who is head of creative digital emerging products at Penguin Random House Australia. Kylie's been right on the bleeding edge of transmedia production over the last 15 or 20 years, I would say. Malcolm Turner, not Malcolm Turnbull, I'm sorry, I've been doing that all week. <laughs> Malcolm Turner is the esteemed uh, executive director of the amazing Melbourne International Animation Festival that we'll call MIAF to save us all some time. And Malcolm's been associated with that festival since 2001 and it started really small and is now the biggest animation event in the country and has a whole lot of uh, life overseas as well. And finally, we have uh, Associate Professor Stefan Greuter, from, who's the Director of RMIT's Centre for Games Design Research. I reverse that every time I say it. I apologise. Stefan has been at RMIT for a number of years. He came to Australia with some prestigious uh, research scholarships behind him from Germany and uh, given to him in Australia as well. And he has been right at the front of game design research through his time at RMIT as well. So we're going to get some fantastically diverse responses to questions this evening. What we've tried to do is find people who will look at the skill sets you're developing differently from their position in industry. And hopefully the questions that we put to them will expose a nice broad range of possible futures to you. So we'll talk for about 40-45 minutes and then we'll open the discussion up to you for your questions. So please, if you, anything occurs to you as, as our guests are speaking, please hold on to it and you're really welcome to ask at the end of the discussion. So I think I'll start by asking our panel members if they can give us a little potted history of how they got to where they are at this moment in time in their industry. I have to pass this along. Right. Thank you. Good. Thank you. <clears throat> um, so, so for me, like uh, when, as you can tell, I'm I'm, I'm German uh, with this accent, and um, the um, I started actually out in as a fitter and turner in um, in Germany, and so I was welding things, and I was manufacturing small machine parts and all of that and that's actually quite rewarding because at the end of the day you kind of see what you're doing and you see how many things you've produced out of you know rough material you get these shiny little things and that's great um, <clears throat> but there's always been this drive to for me to to be more creative to um, to do something else and um, so I, I went back to school and um, in, in Germany, we've got that system that when <clears throat> you you don't do so well in your high school, you can do school again for a year, and then and then if you do well there, you can go and study. And um, 
And so I went um, to study digital media, so something completely different. And uh, that was actually really difficult for me to decide to all of a sudden depart from something I've learned to, you know, something new that was completely something I hadn't done before. And um, <clears throat> and I actually went there with the intention to learn about animation, but um, at that time, you know, that was the time when Jurassic Park came out and it was all very sexy. Uh, but the, the rendering times, they were just a killer. It's just like you, 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 can, you can see how the, the frame kind of starts to unpixelate and all of that. <clears throat> and uh, so I actually decided I... Uh, I, I don't do the rendering stuff, so I go with games, because that's immediate and real-time. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, um, and um, that, that's been then quite interesting. I learned about programming, and, um, and in a way, you know, these skill sets that you learn in animation and in games, you kind of need to use them just in a slightly different form than anybody again. <clears throat> and... Um, and then I got the scholarships uh, to do a master's degree at the Center for Animation and Interactive Media here with uh, Jeremy and everybody. And then um, that turned into a PhD. Uh, and I've completed that PhD, which then turned into employment in TAFE. I've worked for the um, Advanced Diploma for Animation and uh, Interactive Media. Um, and then uh, I, I moved into the animation department and from there into the games department and then I became program director and then discipline head and uh, and now I'm the center for game design research. So that's been yeah, quite a long-winded story, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it kind of, I mean, it kind of shows you don't, sometimes you, like as a student you, you don't know um, exactly where you're going to end up. And it's really difficult to plan that too. But um, what you feel is kind of this, this drive and this interest in a certain area. And I see that with a lot of students today. So the most important thing is like when you actually start to do your undergraduate studies is that you know which roughly which field interests you. And from then, if that's the right one, then usually you find your way. Um, hi, my name's Malcolm Turner. I'm currently the director of the Melbourne International Animation Festival. It was something that I established with two other people back in 2001. Uh, gee, life stories. I essentially, you know, to all intents and purposes, left high school when I was about 14. I got sick of it and um, worked in the fields for two or three days of the week when the money was there and the sun was shining. And um, for my troubles, I was expelled from high school three times for not turning up. Um, but left high school when I was 15. Um, I took a carpentry apprenticeship, so I'm a carpenter by trade. My father was a carpenter. Um, <clears throat> that went okay, I finished, but I, I wound up travelling overseas in the 1980s, washed up in Central America as a photojournalist covering a particularly pointless civil war that the Americans were funding. Um, uh, in, at that time. Um, I'm originally from New Zealand. I got sick of life being a combination of bullets and hangovers, which is kind of what that job is, um, and went back to New Zealand. I went on to become a commercial pilot for a while. I'd upgraded. I'd always been interested in flying and 
did that, but I went to university with the intention of becoming a theatre director, of all things. Um, one of the things that I'd known all of my life, I think, was that um, one of the great human endeavours is art and understanding, you know, spending our lives understanding the great kind of emotions that we have within us and using our consciousness to learn more and more and more about the world around us. Um, and through that I developed an interest in theatre management and, and um, in festival theatre festival management and spent quite a bit of time overseas. I've worked for festivals in Brighton in the UK. I worked for WOMAD for a while. Um, I worked for a festival called Eurocaz in Croatia. I established the um, Wellington Fringe Festival back in the early 90s because I just really love the chaos that really, really great fringes can bring to a city and I really enjoyed kind of upsetting the arts festival that was in place at the time. Um, but through all of that, you know, there, there was this, this thread of being a failed theatre director and theatre theatre directors go kind of one of two directions or one of three directions. Direction number one is, you know, fries with that, sir. Um, direction number two is they spend their lives stressing about not being able to make the well-made play or getting into the Royal Shakespeare Company, something like that. And the third direction is they spend their lives worrying increasingly about how they produce stranger and more and more and more esoteric theatre. And that's where I went. And I was taking a class in Portland in Oregon one day and we were talking about the problems of taking a theatre production and your actors and your audience and the physical set from one place to another very different place very quickly and as smoothly as possible. The, the, the problems when you have these extreme ideas when you're working in the physical space are very difficult to overcome. You're stuck with things like the laws of gravity and all that kind of thing. And, and somebody showed me a film called Mindscape by Jacques Drouin. It's a pin screen animation. It's made on a pin screen like Alexiev made. And that was a transformative moment I saw out my contract there. Went back to New Zealand, told a whole lot of lies and convinced the New Zealand Film Festival to hire me as an animation programmer and went off to the Stuttgart Animation Festival and started programming animated programs from there on. And um, linked up with a couple of people here in Melbourne that had made a really successful film and had followed it around the world and didn't understand why Melbourne didn't have an animation festival like so many other places did. Um, packed in a reasonable job over in New Zealand, came over here to um, basically live in poverty. I think we had about a $2,000 grant and a hot desk at the old Acme. Um, and we established MEAF, the three of us established MEAF in 2001. I think we showed six programs of about 90 films to about seven or 800 people. These days MEAF is now, we, you know, last year we got three and a half thousand submissions. We showed about 450 films and about 50 programs over an 11 day period. We have a two day conference now called Render, which is um, going increasingly well, although it's quite a bit of work. We're about to launch um, a, a dedicated annual journal to Australian animation and the Render conference is about to kind of split into a, uh, one that's also designed to attract secondary school age um, kids. Um, my other roles, I'm the animation programmer for the Sydney Film Festival, I'm still the animation programmer for the New Zealand Film Festival and I'm a co-director of the London International Animation Festival and I have a scholar badge which is kind of interesting for somebody that's barely literate. I'm, I've, for the last year I've been a um, creative fellow over at the State Library of Victoria researching the centenary of Australian animation. So, that's me. Hey, I'm Kylie. Um, 
I've been working in digital and interactive storytelling for about 18 years now, just a side of my age. Um, way back when CD-ROMs were the big thing. Um, I kicked off, actually studied at RMIT in this very room, actually, we had lectures here, um, scientific photography. Um, which was really the first foray for me into that kind of collision between art and technology and also science. Uh, I was really fascinated with the research aspect with what I did and also the visual communication aspect to that uh, course as well. So that really kind of set a foundation for what I wanted to do next. Um, I actually went off to Darwin for a year and taught at the university there in the really early days of digital imaging, so the first version of Photoshop. Um, and then came back and um, I went to VCA and did a postgrad in film and television in the first year of multimedia. And so that's when we were working on kind of 9600 Max. Um, incredibly slow, very frustrating, but at the heart of what I did was that storytelling uh, aspect of, of what I wanted to do with my career. Uh, and that's really where my interest in interactive storytelling came from. Um, I kind of fell in love with games like Riven and Mist. I don't know if you guys would have seen any of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, that, that collision between narrative um, gameplay uh, and technology as well. And at the time at VCA, we were coding all of our own stuff. Um, we were shooting film, we were writing scripts, uh, we were doing all aspects of production. So it was a really fascinating kind of base to work with when I came out of, out of school. The, one of the problems that I faced, I guess, over the course of my career, and it kind of highlighted in the fact that my job title is so long now, um, I've never been able to pin down exactly what I do because I have a, a collection of skills um, that make me suited to this format of storytelling, non-linear storytelling. Um, so I came out of that um, and I started working at Sausage Software, which is one of the first internet startups in Australia during the dot-com boom. Um, lots of silly money being thrown around at some really interesting time, though. Really great, color, like high-caliber um, skill sets across technology, software development, and also marketing and design. So I spent probably, I think, three or four years there um, just working as a producer and a designer as well. Again, that kind of collection of skills that made me suited to different types of projects and working with clients. It was a very steep learning curve. Um, again, really great foundation for what I was doing in the future. But at the time, I was also to see what sort of technology uh, was coming on the horizon. So um, I noticed that I think it was around maybe 99 or 2000 broadband was just about to hit Australia, so internet speeds were increasing. I thought, wow, there's an opportunity to do something with video online. Everyone thought it was a bit bonkers, but that's okay. <laughs> I've been told no a lot you know, in my career as well. So a lot of people have said, can't be done. Um, why are you doing it that way? And I've been very tenacious in the way that I've done things. Um, and you really have to push through some of those barriers as well. So I created uh, Australia's first broadband drama series called Jupiter Green, um, which was a uh, brand funded by City Search at the time as well. Um, that really set me up career-wise. Um, I worked a lot with funding body bodies at the time, so Screen Australia and Film Victoria. Uh, so built a really good rapport with them for future projects as well. Uh, I came out of that actually. Um, I started a production company. Um, I was working in visual effects as well. A lot of 2D animation, After Effects, um, and production again. So combining that storytelling, technology, and visual communication. Uh, and after that, I think I started my own business, um, which ran for about almost a decade. Um, I still do stuff on the side with my business, Studio-ish. Uh, and we really, uh, I guess, were one of the first um, businesses in Australia to, to centre or focus on transmedia storytelling. We had um, a lot of IP that we developed, a project called Girl Friday uh, with the advent of mobile video that we produced. 
um, and also uh, a sci-fi and another comedy series at the time. Uh, Girlfriend Friday was pretty seminal, and that's how uh, I know Kate. Um, we landed a deal with Telstra, two-season, 16-episode uh, deal, and this was in 2003, I think it was, so pre-most of the social networks that you know now, pre-YouTube, all of that stuff, so we're really kind of at the bleeding edge um, of trying to, you know, kind of tell stories in different ways. Um, we pushed really hard in that space. Uh, it allowed us to kind of, uh, I guess, develop a really good client base as well, so we worked with ABC and SBS, um, Intrepid Travel, Penguin was one of my clients. Um, and coming out of that, I guess, um, we we noticed that the, the funding wasn't really there for the IP stuff that we were doing, um, and the client work was getting too full on. We had too much of it, and we were a small company. Uh, so we t decided to kind of stop the business, um, and then I moved into the role that I'm now in at Penguin, um, which is a pretty amazing role. Um, I get to look after all of the innovation area, so anything outside of business as usual. So again, using all those kind of technology meets storytelling meets visual communication um, skills that I, I've developed over many years uh, to look at the way we can develop new reading experiences for audiences um, through digital platforms. Um, that's a big snapshot. <laughs> Hello everyone, I'm Kelly. Um, so yes, I when I was in high school, yes high school, I had to bribe one of my friends to go and see Aladdin on the big screen. I think I was in about grade 10. I was a real nerd. I'll say, we'll do it on the holidays, so no one has to know. But anyway, I never really thought about it, but at the end of Aladdin, I, I thought it was amazing. It just blew me away. But then all the names came up, and I thought, oh, my God, people do this for a living. So I was hooked. And uh, I was going to do fine arts. I come from Brisbane at QCA, and then I discovered they had an animation course. And I was like, oh, my God, again. This is great. So I um, did the animation degree uh, at QCA, graduated in 97, came down to Melbourne um, after the year after that, and I've been here ever since. So that's been nearly 15 to 20 years, perhaps, almost 97, 98. Yeah, well, I'm not good with maths. I'm good with a pencil, that's about it. Um, so I started off as uh, an in-betweener, pencil, paper, uh, working at a, in a traditional animated show called Ocean Girl and worked my way up through in between cleanup and then became a junior animator and I thought, yes, I've made it, this is amazing. <laughs> and then software came in and I was like, oh my God. So I had to move to Perth and I worked on a show called Quads, which was actually one of the first um, flash um, series made in Australia. It was a co-production between Australia and Canada. Um, that was Flash 4, and we're still working in Flash. <laughs> but uh, it was interesting to go from, um, you know, drawing pencil paper, flipping the whole lot, and then suddenly just staring at a screen and, and working on a Wacom. That was, it was, it was good. Um, so, yes, then we came, I came back to Melbourne. I started another company called Big Kids Entertainment. A lot of people, I think these days, the attractiveness of freelance is, of course, attractive. But I think at the time, we're coming from a studio environment, the idea of going out on your own was very daunting. So we and a number of other friends decided to start Big Kids Entertainment. Um, sort of safety in numbers, power in numbers. We could obviously take on a bit bigger, higher volume work, bigger projects. Um, and then we... So Big Kids was around for about... 10 years, 
We worked on, um, again, the second series of quads. We worked on Dogstar 1. Uh, as, and I was an animator through all this. Uh, and then Dogstar Series 2 came along and I worked with another company called Square Eye as a, the design coordinator for that, for that season. So they had 26 half-hour episodes for each of those. It's, it's quite a large amount of animation. Um, at the moment I'm in a company called Twelve Field uh, Animation Studio. We, with Big Kids and Square Eye, sorry, I'll talk about Melbourne, the animation scene, certainly in the 2000s, mid-2000s, there were lots of little satellite studios. So if a large project came in, I suppose it's a bit like when you freelance, you, you know, nobody really freelances to one freelancer, they'll freelance to a number. But um, it's a similar for little, these little satellite studios. If a big project came in, it was always the, all these little satellite studios that were all contributing to this one project. And we would always be working with this other company called Square Eye, <laughs> um, the boys from Square Eye. Um, so if anything large came in, we'd always be doing a project with them. So we kind of just thought, well, we're always going to be working together. Why don't we just make our own company? <laughs> so Big Kids came with their... We thought we were... Um, well, we, I'm sure we were. We thought we came in with the animation grunt and the boys from Square were really good at design. So we um, formed a studio called 12 Field Animation. And then in the last couple of years, we've just finished... Well, not just finished, but last year, made a series for the ABC called The Flaming Thongs which was on ABC3 for, um, no, it was ABC2, yeah. And at the moment we're in the middle of making a telly movie for Channel 9, which is a dog star telly movie. Um, and there we're also about to begin project that's going to be going to the bulk of production next year. It's for, uh, it's an Aboriginal series, quarter episodes, I think there's about 12 quarter episodes, uh, partly funded by NITV as well, and it's a co-production between us and another studio in Tasmania called Blue Rocket. Um, so we do have a number of things um, happening in the pipeline. We generally are a production house. We commission sort of based. People come to us to create large form, long form projects. We do have a relationship with uh, a producer, Media World, that sort of feeds us that work. But yeah, we're generally um, just a, a group of artists that specialise in 2D animation. Um, and I think that's that's pretty much it. Yeah. And I was the director of Flaming Thongs, so that was that was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was my first series that I directed. Sorry, all my papers are flying everywhere. Um, I think there's sometimes, and even Kate had mentioned it as well. It's nice to have a female director um, to come and talk. Um, it is great. It's re it's very great. But I, I, I suppose I'm very lucky in that I've never really experienced that sort of gender bias when I go for any kind of role. And even when we're screening people, what, what, whether you're female or male, means absolutely nothing to us. It's all about the quality of your work and your presentation of your, you know, your reel. Um, but I know that it is still an issue for, for lots of people out there, especially in, I think, in the programming area, um, 3D programming. Uh, it is quite... Um, there's a lot of men in that industry. So there is a bit of a push to you know, get, get women in there. But uh, for me personally, yeah, when we, we have a studio that's, um, yeah, we've got, I think it's almost half-half at yeah, this yeah. point in time. Yeah, yeah. Our undergraduates are definitely half-half. Yeah. The animation, the games, much more balanced in terms of gender now. Yeah. In your undergraduate, yeah, I would say. And that's what we see 
Yeah. Usually when I talk, even, I mean, even when I walked in here, it, it's always about 50-50 and it kind of just will, will end up being a little bit tipped one way or the other. Something's going wrong in the transformation yeah. though because yes. I've done a lot of classes and yeah. you know, I don't count but they, no. they look roughly 50-50 exactly. for quite a while. Yeah. But, you know, roll the clock forward for mm -hmm. five years and yeah, you walk into these studios and it's like, yeah, there's one girl sitting over there. Yeah, sorry to sorry, just you know, segue into a completely. <laughs> yeah. That's something that we talk about. We see often in education, we see really balanced gender representation in classes. Mm. But then, when you go into industry, as you said, it can look really different from that. And the question is why? Yeah. We, we wonder, um, and I wonder, you know, are there insights that you might have, um, Kylie, particularly in your yeah. Look, I haven't noticed the bias, to be honest. Again, um, yeah, and, and publishing in itself is predominantly female, actually, um, more so than male. But, um, yeah, no, I, I don't feel that gender bias. Yeah, in terms of development and coding um, technology, there's definitely, you know, heavy male population, but that's changing. It's definitely changing. You're seeing more fem female coders popping up through the ranks, so that's great, yeah. Mm -hmm. Could I ask, um, maybe I'll go back to Kelly and go back this way to if you're going into your field now, what would be the biggest difference? How would you how would you go about coming in? Well, when I when I first applied for my job as an in betweener, I had to come down to Melbourne, bring a big A three. Was it the, is that the big one? Yeah. Portfolio. Had to flip through pictures. Like it was all it was all presented, and now the. The content of what I was presenting is still exactly the same, but for me, it's links. You've got to have it online. Um, and it's got to be now, well, I only had one folio, so I could only really show sort of, you know, three or four pages of your life drawing, your character design, maybe some backgrounds, um, a turnaround of a character. But now with online, you can have pages and pages of that stuff. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's probably the biggest thing. It's really, it has definitely gone digital. Um, and the, a lot of people will post their site plus their DeviantArt page and here's my blog and here's my Tumblr and I'll usually just pick one. <coughs> I know that's very unfair. <laughs> I'll just pick one and I'll look at it. Um, it's usually people's site. That's, um, well, it's to do with reach. You can make yeah. yourself um, available to many more people. You can give a sort of deeper <coughs> suggestion of who you are. Exactly. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And what about you? <coughs> Struck me how um, curvy the paths mm. that everyone has had toward their career have been. Maybe Kelly, yours was, was the most direct. Mm. Um, I knew exactly what I wanted. I, I mean, I saw Jasmine, and I was like, "That's what I'm going to do." <laughs> I was very direct. I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I was very lucky. Whereas Malcolm went through. <laughs> 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 You've got a plane flying. Stefan started out as a fitter and turner, yeah. which I didn't know. Yeah, but yeah. So Always good to have a trade behind you. <laughs> <laughs> How would it be different for you now? Uh, if you were interested in your field and graduating now? I think, it, I mean, it's, it's fair to say that it's still an emerging field. Um, the industry is very small in Australia. Um, but I think you would have to demonstrate your capability more so in the storytelling area and how to architect those stories. So because it's made make a creator culture now, you'd have to have something yeah up online, demonstrable of your skill set. Um, 
and probably kind of some key understandings around social and audience as well, which, you know, I was still discovering all of that stuff as the platforms are emerging. So I'd, I'd say some measured kind of success in some regard um, would kind of fare well in terms of, a, you know, an employment situation. Um, but it really comes down to the type of work that I do, um, particularly in innovation, is just about really great ideas and really great storytelling. Um, and if you can sell that, then you'll find a job easily. Um, hmm. I kind of created my own job in a certain sense by establishing the festival. Um, <clears throat> I wonder if it could be established now, you know, if the conditions that existed in 2000 when we set it up are long gone. I don't... I mean, I mean probably almost nobody wants my job. There's only probably a couple of dozen people in the world that do what I do anyway. I, if I had my time... Over, I would have started earlier, you know, when we didn't face the kind of technological hurdles and the funding shortages that we face now. MEAF's lucky in that it's now established and, you know, I have great relationships with organisations like RMIT and embassies around the world and Screen Australia, but I think if I rolled into town now and tried to replicate what I've done, I probably wouldn't be able to do it. Um, is there, anything, uh, is there anything that social media and the, uh, the way that we live our lives online now, would any of that contribute to the establishment of a, making your job in establishing a festival easier? Well, I think it, I think it would change it. And, and the, 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 the problem is my, my take on that, on that question is an incredibly personal one. And, you know, when I go under a bus and somebody else takes over MEAF, it'll be a very, very different um, festival. MEAF has a real focus on um, auteur animation and animation as a fine art form. And, you know, I hear all the criticisms about the new media applications and things that aren't really represented in, in MEAF, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Somebody else would bring that to it, but we would lose all the painted films and all the sand animation and things like that. Um, I think, you know, if, if somebody wanted to go into film event programming or management, um, what exists now that didn't really exist then are really good um, tertiary courses in event management, and I would probably take advantage of those rather than trying to wing it through the hard way. But that's, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty narrow niche that I'm in so in terms of work. So. Okay. I'm unemployable. I'm sure that you wouldn't suggest that everybody uh, undertakes a fitting and turning career as a prerequisite. No, it's so quite great. You can, you can build your own fence and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> these, these kind of skills are very transferable. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, I mean, if I look back at the, um, the industry and how it was when I started and and uh, how it is now and what has changed, I think the word that comes to mind is access. Um, because, I mean, when I started, there was no YouTube. Uh, there was also no, not that much software. I mean, Photoshop was around, but it didn't have layers in there. Or, um, I mean, can you imagine that? Or <laughs> th then <laughs> there was... Um, if you wanted to do 3D animation, you had to have a silicon graphics machine, cost $50,000, plus the software, $10,000, which was, um, I don't even know what it was called back then, <laughs> the software, but anyway, it was 
you know, clunky and uh, difficult to work. And, you know, there were no tutorials. You had to read a big handbook to even get something rendered. And things were really just starting out. And as far as, as far as games go, there was no game theory. There were no, there was game design wasn't even a word that people talked about at that point in time. So all these games that were developed were, you know, a lot of them were just uh, hit and miss, and people didn't know what worked, what didn't work. They were made in garages, in mostly in America, on really small budgets. Um, the, um, the audience of people who played games were, like, mostly you know, young boys and uh, geeks and like all of these names. <clears throat> and now, you know, we have, um, yeah, I, I, I would actually say 50-50, um, like gender split when it comes to games and people who play games. In fact, more females play mobile games than male, game, male players. And... Um, and we play games on so many platforms, like, and games are now breaking outside of just a, you know, your computer and you play games, you know, in businesses, gamification and all of that. Um, so yeah, so the access is the one that's different yeah. today, yeah. To nearly all manifestations of the industry, the the idea of access. Um, I think uh, something I wanted to ask uh, about, which is really relevant to the people sitting in this room, is the constant innovation and the constant change in technology. So, in your fields, where where is the site of that? Is it in commercial production houses? Is it in independent practice? Is it in universities, in dedicated research institutions, or does it come from everywhere? Maybe I could get you to start yes. off. Mm, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting when, when I look at um, the field where most innovation happens. Like at the moment, it's VR. And, and, and really interestingly, VR was around when uh, I started my career as well. But then the internet came and it killed it. And then nobody, everybody wanted to do websites and nobody wanted to do VR anymore. And and the computers weren't fast enough. So now this is coming back. And if you look at pictures that were like there of people wearing head-mounted displays and various controllers um, about 30 years ago, uh, no, 20 years ago, it's exactly the same what, what Oculus is going to sell next year. So, um, and it's kind of interesting like when you look at innovation and change, how these things seem to cycle and they come back again and uh, and then things change and then the other thing that I find interesting is like with um, you know uh, when when Google gives their staff a day where they can do what do whatever work they want to do and research and this is something that academics have actually got built into their work plan and, and nobody thinks or appreciates that as much. I feel um, th these are kind of things where you see uh, society is changing as well and there's obviously a need for this kind of free exploration in 
businesses as well. And so research is not just happening now at universities in a way that used to be the case. It's happening in businesses as well. But um, yes, so I think innovation and change is happening um, across all levels. Yeah. Yeah, a whole, a whole, it's coming from different directions in a certain sense. Um, I'll give you two examples, maybe. When I started MIAF, I mean, just in terms of the way um, films as an entity are handled, when I started MIAF, we received about 300 submissions, all of them on individual VHS tapes. And I remember building the shelf to hold the VHS tapes and labelling them all, and we thought it was kind of Christmas every day. Um, for the last festival, you know, that then transcended to DVDs, and I always hated DVDs as a physical object. I'm so pleased we're done with them. But, you know, last festival, I actually downloaded submissions while I was sitting on a Singapore Airlines flight, flying over the Caspian Sea with a glass of wine in my hand, and, you know, I was downloading submissions on a ferry between Tallinn and Finland. They all come in that way now. Even the, the physical material that we use to screen films from, we used to spend close to $20,000 on FedEx accounts now. I think it's been 700 bucks on FedEx and, and they're all coming. But, you know, within the next two or three years, we won't have anything at all. We'll have a code that, a, you know, the server in Acme will, you know, automatically clip into a server somewhere else and it'll just be played live online onto the screen. <clears throat> so, you know, just that, that handling of physical material. Um, the, the other thing I'd say is that, you know, although commercial animation relies heavily and probably almost entirely on, on um, you know, highly technological solutions to get it made. In, in the field of auteur and independent animation, that's not nearly the case. I would say, I mean, computers play a role in most animated, short animated films that are made, but, you know, three and a half thousand submissions that I got last year, I'd only classify 30% and 30, 40% of them as being you know, CG animation. People are still very much making, you know, these sorts of films out of plasticine and they're still making them out of sand and they're still painting on glass and I just invited to paint on glass film. Computers help that process a little bit but but we are seeing, I think, the end of the first wave of being in love with computer animation just for the sake of being computer animation. Now the computer animation that we're getting tends to be as good as you know, within its within its realm is all the other kind of techniques that are being employed. Whereas a few years ago, you know, it was you know you would get film after film after film that amounted to not much more than somebody turning a blue square into a red circle and thinking that was pretty cool. And I think you know probably a couple of thousand years ago, you know, a couple of cavemen were sitting at a river and compressed up some you know wood pulp and come up with a piece of paper and put a mark on it. And went, ooh, ooh, paper, you know, and that was enough. And I think we've got to the end of that. Just that pointless fascination with computer animation for the so we're seeing really high quality really creative uses of computers now rather than just you know doing that as so that'd be the two but it's it's yeah it's changed the face of animation quite a bit Marty, you have the word innovation in your job title. <laughs> so uh, how does that manifest in, in, in your working day how do you work and innovate and produce <coughs> Yeah, um, I find it such an ambient 
term to use as well because innovation can be very small incremental changes and influence um, within the business or they can be uh, trying new platforms, devices and technologies or they can be partnering uh, with innovative producers. Um, and I work across all of those areas. Um, so part of it is around uh, education internally, so um, changing the way that we process and think about content and story worlds um, and influencing the publishers to think in that way. So um, I tend to coin a term called story DNA internally, so just thinking about how you can uh, think about a, a story world or a story or even author brands um, as components and assets and how you mine those assets and then distribute those assets across platforms. Um, and that's a concept that publishers understand really well. They also know their audience incredibly well and they know really great stories. So that's been a really, for me, um, an aspect of innovation within my role. Uh, some of the other kind of product development um, uh, opportunities that I've had is um, I've worked with, does anyone know Lance Weiler out of the US? He's really prolific in the kind of transmedia space. So that was a really unique partnership to bring a second screen reading experience to kids. Um, it's about a little robot from outer space and she's a plush toy. You can insert a phone into her heart and there's an app that connects with a, a book. Also a prequel website. So we really busted the kind of story apart uh, for kids to kind of experience. Um, and also uh, we did a thing called Dial a Story uh, as well, which is an interactive uh, phone booth. So we took the idea of digital away from uh, people uh, engaging with stories um, in a library environment. So it's, it's a physical phone that you basically pick up the phone, you listen to um, a story and you can record your own as a part of a, an ongoing archive of really great Australian stories. So you can ring John Safran and Father Bob and they'll be barking at you on the other end of the phone. Um, really, really successful because there is no barrier to entry when it comes to that interface that you have with the story. Um, but essentially ran all on a Raspberry Pi, um, all interfaced through a, a central CMS as well. So very, very simple, straightforward, really, really successful. Um, and some of the other things that I do internally really are around distribution, um, which sounds really dry, but it's not. Um, so I look uh, heavily around the strategy for both adult and kids' audiences, and kids is a particular focus for me. Um, looking at, again, that kind of maker-created culture and how we foster the, the next generation of storytellers. So giving them assets from within story worlds to play with, to remix and rethink content, that kind of thinking um, is where I'm, I'm headed. And also developing out platforms that can sustain us long term uh, with our digital content. So how do we continue to reach uh, readers in new and interesting ways? And not to think about readers as just readers of books. I mean, we read every day on our screen. So how do we engage with people in new ways? Um, we're doing second screen reading experience stuff. We're doing, we're looking at wearables, we're looking at in-car, you name it, we're looking at it um, to try and interrupt, um, you know, and engage with people in that kind of everyday uh, sense. Um, you know, I see everything as a canvas basically um, for story um, and you've just got to be really careful to understand that that's a contextual aspect. So, um, you know, you have to make content relevant from the device from which it's being um, you know, distributed, so that's also part of my role. So, yeah, it's, it's, that's kind of a broad snapshot of what I would do day to day. It's incredible, yeah. uh, the range of possibilities. Yeah, it yeah, it almost stresses me out sometimes. Yeah. So, because you, you know, Penguin, obviously, you guys would know Penguin. Most people know them for the 
uh, orange classics, most people would have one on their shelf. Um, but, you know, the scope of the content sitting in those archives, you know, 215,000 books in Penguin alone. Um, so it's how we also look at our backlist and mine our backlist um, and author brands. So that's a really interesting aspect to what I do it's too. It's really interesting too when you think about there's an accepted pathway from uh, the literature into film, mm. but we haven't seen such a strong pathway into, say, transmedia storytelling. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see if that happens, if that step. Do you think that will happen, that we will accept that as naturally as we accept? It's interesting. Audience has already accepted. Yeah. There is no bar- barrier to entry with audience. Uh, I think from a, a commercialisation, like a commercial models around this, it's, it's tricky um, because obviously the cost of producing digital content can actually be higher than the cost of producing a book um, and you know book sales are still really really strong so you don't kind of want to mind that that market but you want to run in parallel um, and really complement um, you know the idea of having a book on the shelf but also being able to access your content anywhere on any device and have unique experiences again that are not just text on a page um, we expect more than that in terms of um, you know that audience for platforms so yeah thank you thanks no worries Kelly, sorry. Um, we were talking just before we sat down about um, innovation in innovation's place in a way, that there's innovation in technology, but there's also innovation in practice around technology. Yeah. And you were talking about um, how your big production now for television yeah. is based in a relatively old version of, of Flash and your decision is to stay with that. Yes. Maybe, <laughs> that. Yeah, I mean... When you talk about innovation, especially for commercial studios, you've kind of got your bread and butter commercial, bread and butter sort of um, innovation, which is about making your pipeline as efficient as possible. So we we're actually still using Flash CS4 for to make the the telly movie, um, and that's because we've been working with Flash for such a long time. We know the program in and out. We know its strengths. We know its weaknesses. So we know that we can sort of make our pipeline of our production um, as efficient as possible. So innovation comes in um, by um, someone writing a command, something as simple as um, sharing a shortcut with um, someone else. And we're, as a studio, we're very um, conscious about making sure that artists who sit next to each other are actually aware of what we're doing um, because this person next to you might be able to put out 40 seconds a week and you're sitting there struggling to do 25 seconds a week. You go, how can that person bust out that much that fast? And so it's a process of sitting down as a group and saying, <clears throat> this is my process for um, how I approach my animation. These are the type of shortcuts that I use. I've got some plugins here. Um, I've got some scripts that I've got. Um, and it's, it's, it's sharing that knowledge around. So there's innovation in there. Um, but that's, again, that's much more the bread and butter side of <laughs> and running an animation studio. Um, I think innovation definitely comes from what you guys are doing, which is what I consider as pet projects, where you get to lavish a little bit more time and attention on you know, even just creative problem solving where you may not have that um, time in a sort of a um, a deadline-driven project. I know that you guys have your own deadlines, of course. You know, you can't take six years to graduate, of course. 
but it's you, it's all coming from you. You're not having necessarily having someone come in, a broadcaster and a producer and an executive producer saying, I don't like the colour of that person's pants and I want that kid to have red hair. It's all about you, it's what you want. You can take on board the constructive criticism, sift it out, but you know, sometimes with you know, large projects, you've got so many eyes on this thing and so many people want their own input and they want to see it happen that sometimes you can feel like, you know, I just ha honestly have a little bit less creative control in it. So the pet projects, the stuff that ends up at MEAF, you know, that's, that's amazing to go and see. It should be what inspires you. And you see stuff up there and you go, wow, that, how did they make that? And then you can dissect it a little bit and go, oh, I think I could employ some of those little techniques in, you know, an X project or you're not going to, of course, steal the whole thing. But, you know, I see stuff online and I go, that, that looks beautiful, you know. Look at that shading, look at the lighting technique, look at that character design. You know, I'm, you take it all on board. So I think the pet projects is where I feel a lot of innovation comes from. It's, um, for me personally, um, yeah. Oh, gosh, I've talked for too long. Well, maybe I can... Um, we'd like to... I'd like to ask you one more sort of quick question, which um, might speak to some of the questions that are coming out of the audience. So I'd kind of like to ask, what, what work are you interested in at the moment? What's interesting to you? What do you see a great deal of potential in? Um, maybe I'll start with Stefan here. If you just give me a quick survey of your current <laughs> interests. I mean, I mean it... As a researcher, the thing that makes things interesting for me is the question, what if? And so what, what if I take an Oculus Rift and I'm on a roller coaster? So what, you know, and, and these things are being tried out because like there, for example, um, there's a, an amusement park in Germany and they're trying this out. They, put a virtual reality device onto people and what that means is they can reuse this old roller coaster that everybody knows in and out and they don't have to create new physical content for it. That means you can drive, uh, ride the same ride and experience different content. And it also means what people have found out is you can exaggerate in virtual reality the, the curves you're Go, you're uh, going through in, on your roller coaster, and we actually believe that. So you can make a roller coaster more scary for some people, and for others you can make it less scary. And um, so you get these new kind of experiences out of that. I find that quite kind of interesting. Or um, so this question of like, what if you use, if you put things together, what effect will that have on people who use it? That's the interesting bit for me. Fantastic example as well. The, the, the fact that you can lay new realities onto the existing ones is endlessly interesting. Which, which is what animation is uniquely good for. Um, for. For me, I think it's probably, I'm probably regressing in a certain sense. I. As I get older, I think I'm, and, and some experiences I've had in the last couple of years, I'm becoming increasingly interested in writing and researching and recording the history of animation, particularly Australian animation. And MIAF's one of the last festivals, one of the last animation festivals in the world to still print a catalogue. <clears throat> and I write most of that, it's about 100 pages, and we're about to launch a, a 
a, um, a journal dedicated entirely to creative Australian animation. Um, so I, I sense my life heading in that direction in, to some degree. Um, but my passion remains to ensure that MIAF stands as a festival that speaks to animation as an art form. Animation has so many different uses out there in the world and there are many events and many kind of outlets for a lot of those but but animation purely as a creative expression and as an art form will be the DNA and of, of MIAF for as long as I'm running it and something that um, I will continue to, to you know have as my main priority for putting that particular event together. So there's a degree of, sort of backward looking sentimental sort of uh, very pragmatic um, documenting of history why, why do you think you're interested in that now? Why do you think you've sort of stepped? Well, I think I came, I came to animation, you know, with, with experience in event management and 10 or 15 years ago I, I saw it, and still do, but I saw it as um, my main workload being running an event. Um, and running MIAF is the, the thing I've done the longest in my life. I've never had a single gig that lasted this long and I've, I've come to I've come to know how much I don't know and you know part, but to some extent I've been fairly influenced by the fact that I've had this year-long um, fellowship over the road at the State Library of Victoria and being part of that that research community the people that are get up every day and just want to learn more I'm finding a really kind of fascinating um, environment to be immersed in and and it and it dovetails quite nicely with with that passion I, I mentioned for ensuring MIAF maintains the focus of presenting animation as an art form because there's no <clears throat> there's no real world use for these films this is almost impossible to make a living or really any money from these you you make the kinds of films that go into MIAF generally so there's some exceptions but generally they're made because somebody has that same creative and artistic need to make them in the same way that many writers have a need to write or poets have a need to create poetry or painters paint a painting. You know, why do people make these? Why do people consume them or want to see them? Why do we have these things amongst us? They, and, and again, it speaks to, I think, what I was talking about at the very beginning of this, that the purpose for these is that they are art and art is reason enough and... Part of our job as, as sentient beings is to build a life where we understand what these things say to us and learn more and more, use the gifts and the faculties that we have to um, you know, have that kind of stuff in our life. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of kind of pressures pushing us away from spending our time and our energy doing that. But, um, and I think writing is one of the ways that you know, we do explain this kind of stuff. Um, there's kind of a couple of things. I'm really, I've always been interested in using data and code for the purpose of storytelling. It's kind of influenced my work from really early on. So this idea of generative storytelling and how far I can actually push that um, successfully or unsuccessfully is something that I'm really trying to test uh, at the moment. Um, the second area that I'm really keen on is, I mentioned before, uh, is looking at kids um, and the kids' space when it comes to content and content creation. They're so unpredictable. Um, and it's one of the few areas that I still remain really naive in. And I think there's a level of um, innovation that comes out of 
naivety <laughs> and not understanding a space. Um, so, so for that very reason, I'm, I'm very, very keen on the kids um, area. Um, and the third area is more around um, influencing uh, corporate culture with creative innovation, um, trying to uh, distill some of this thinking from really top down um, and see how that can influence, um, you know, every facet of a business. It's really challenging um, and you know I'm, I'm working that internally within Penguin Random House but um, you know I'd like to kind of continue to do that um, you know and see where that goes so yeah that's that's battle. Yeah. Um, I'll be I'll, I'll uh, mine's quite simple um, I suppose what we're trying to do at this point in time is come up with build our own IP and that basically is the the challenge of making a ripper story that, you know, kids are going to be interested in and then trying to couple that with something, an approach, a visual style that um, is going to stand out am amongst the huge amount of content that already exists, um, which is very difficult, uh, especially because I think Australia's, well, we're just about to have this massive boom. You know, Netflix is here, Stan, Presto, you've got Foxtel, You've got still free to air. I don't know that they're going to be around for too much longer. So what we're what the amount of content that we want and need is just is just booming. Um, but I'm not sure that Australia has the economy where, and I think this is the difficulty. I'm not sure that we can necessarily support our own sort of cultural um, commercial content. If that makes sense. I know we've been. We, we struggle with that, that's what... Um, you could if we wanted to. We could, yeah, exactly. But that's that's the whole thing, you know, you're free to air. And then the, now the the pay TV, you know, they they have so much of overseas stuff. You know, they go, we'll, we'll just put that on air. <laughs> We're trying to come up with IP that satisfies that Australian sort of cultural need for their own stories, um, but also have to compete against what already exists. That's a big challenge for us. But it's exciting as well. So I, find, I, find, I think that's, um, yeah, it's really, that's what we're really interested in at the moment. It's just coming up with those great stories. So it's largely ideas yeah. and potential uh, possibilities yeah. for things that, that uh, engage in the interest rather than um, technology. Uh, yeah. Thinking about ways that, that technology can facilitate ideas. Yeah, yeah. There's always going to be a software that can do what you want it to do. Um, but, yeah, you've got to have that idea in the first place. So that's what we're in the process of coming up with. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you very much for your really broad and deeply informed responses. I'm sure that there are going to be questions from the floor. If you'd like to ask a question, please just put your hand right up in there and tell us who you're directing it to. I'm extremely short-sighted, so you might have to... <laughs> like jump up and wave. I think you've got your hand up? Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Kelly, this is you, what you just said. Yeah. You're a bigger Latin fan too. I have a crush on that. Okay. <laughs> um, growing up with animation, looking at eyepiece and Australian stories and things that, because we have such a great cultural base here with different ethnicities, um, Out there, but you've got to be so cautious. Now. 
You do. Just navigating IP alone is just... Yeah. Even just talking about it now would be a breach of an IP. Well, yeah. Look, I... There, there is a... There is a danger, of course, that you will be exploited if you do share your story. But you have to share your story for someone else to get interested in it. And that's where you have to walk that fine line. How much do you want to tell people? Or, you know, and it, yeah, there's, in the past, large organisations have really ripped people off. And I think that's changing now, um, which is really good. Ripped people, that, that sounds terrible, but, um, you know, there were especially in the 90s and early 2000s, there were a lot of competitions where, you know, big networks would put out, um, they'd say, submit your idea, you know, we'll get it made. So they'd get hundreds of ideas and they'd be able to, they might get maybe five, and it's no skin off their nose to, you know, develop that project. But then they go, I like this, I like that, I like that, uh, I like aspects of this, so how can we use it? It's them just, you're just feeding their machine. So it is difficult um, but at the same time, you do need to get that in, out there. To you need to go to the ABC. You need to go to Channel Nine. You need to go. Just, you need to get your pilot. You need to put it on paper. But and the other thing is, is that once it's out there, if someone is interested, they will want to make creative changes. You have to be prepared for that as well. One hundred percent. Yeah. So I'm sorry, that, that's a really difficult thing. But we, that's why our challenge is to come up with a great story, a great um, style that people perhaps maybe don't want to tweak as much. But we, it's a hands down that you, you have to work with people to get it on. You've got your US, US, your international distributors, your local distributors, they've all got to say. So yeah, sorry, long story short, You've got to get your, your project out there, but be prepared for people to have their own input. Yeah. It's difficult. It's difficult for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very hard, like you say. We've got such a, a broad base now. Like, what is an Australian story? What, I, don't, I don't know what it is, but it's about coming up with an idea that perhaps might satisfy, a, you know... Uh, like a base kind of a, a across the board kind of a an idea. Yeah, it's very difficult. So fluid. fluid. Australian story keeps changing. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure it is. It is for for every everywhere, I suppose. Yeah. But I know that especially the UK recently have really closed their doors. Um, the BBC especially. Um, you know, they're really looking internally. They they've. You know, it used to be the BBC would be, show me what you got for everybody, and now they're going, no, no, we we need to look at our we need to look at our na you know national stories, and we want to focus on that. And I think Australia should do that as well. Yeah, I think there's a danger that we could get lost. Yes, mm -hmm. that's a really interesting point. Yes, what do you, how do you see that manifesting itself? Oh, I don't have the answer. <laughs> there's been a few talks. Um, already about that. Um, I'm not, I actually don't have an answer for you, but I think it's, again, it's just coming up with those ideas, talking to people about them and going, this is a great um, story that we think that Australian kids are going to connect to. Sorry, we, we are in the kids industry, I know I talk about kids, but yeah, that's, that's really, it comes down to story, it's what Kylie talks about, having that strong narrative, that strong story, that's where it comes from. 
Thank you. Yep. Sorry. Yes. Oh. Sorry. Okay. I talked for too long. <laughs> <laughs> Would we have time for one more question? Uh, maybe one more. Yes. trying to steer clear of using the word transmedia as well because people um, they use it a lot associated with marketing so a lot of projects you know um, will market what they call the main stage so the film or the book um, or the TV series um, so it, it can service from a marketing perspective um, and that's where I guess majority of the budget spend is um, because transmedia generally the commercial model is still evolving so it's very hard to fund these things um, but I guess it's also a way to mobilise your audience as well. How do you kind of engage your audience in a really different way across platforms? How do you connect those experiences together? Um, so largely I think we're in a state of flux with it. Um, but also if you start to kind of rethink the model, um, you know, I mentioned story DNA before. You start to look at the value of your assets, right? And that's where it becomes really interesting. So, for instance, if we partner with an independent games developer or animation studio, for instance, doing an app, I will look specifically at the quality of the assets that they can create within that process that then can be exploited for a book, for instance. So there's another commercial model attached to it. Um, so I think it's about creating value around a property um, and having a story world that is uh, rich enough and strong enough to support those assets as well. And it really doesn't work for every property either. So it's being realistic about you know, either what services from a marketing perspective, audience or a commercial reality as well. So did that answer your question? Kind of? Kind of? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> it's still a very um, moving industry. Yeah, yeah. Look, and as I said, audience is already, they already engage in this way. There's no problem with audience. It's more, there's a reality attached to the commercial model. So how much does it cost to produce all of these extra or parallel assets? And what, do they service the story or do they service the audience or do they service a marketing Role. So it's just about thinking about those things, yeah. Thank you. We can take one last shortish question, if there is one. Yes? Okay. Um, one more question, uh, I'll for Kelly. Yeah. Um, with the work that you do um, at your animation studio, do you find that, or do you have the desire to work on any pet projects um, on the side? Yes. Oh, yes, yeah. You know, you've the Flame and Thongs took two and a half years to make. And you have to have those small projects that people do in their own time or we made a couple of pilots while we were doing it and they're just, it's almost like the artist's version, version of going and having a coffee break. You know, you just detach because it can be a little bit <laughs> exhausting um, working on the same thing for months and months and months. It is really tough. So to have those um, side projects, even if you just take a scene that you've been working on, you dump on some other... Um, track from somewhere or you might want to scribble over some some eyes I don't know if you guys have seen that that 
those gifts of that person that does Disney takes Disney gifts and you know it's just those really small things that just gives you a creative break. No, we we definitely we like to have small concurrent projects running alongside the really long form ones because otherwise you get burnout and so you just need that creative break to um, to have a a breath of fresh air really. Yeah. A bit of both, a bit of both, yeah. Someone might go, hey, look what I've done, and then everyone goes, that's great, I'm going to have a go at it too. Or, um, you know, with with actually the, some of the pilots that we made, um, we'll go, hey, we are making this project, would you guys be interested in coming off this for a week and working on some animation? So this that would, of course, be a bit more of a studio-driven thing, but it's really just for the actual joy of, of um, doing something kind of that people are going to make people laugh or... You know, just go, and we ha we do something every week called rushes. Um, sometimes they're called weeklies, uh, where you just show uh, things that have come to you during the week, uh, stuff that you've made in the studio, actual more stuff like uh, we might show a piece of a, an animatic that we're working on, or a rough piece of rough cut of animation that we're working on. But it's just a chance for everyone to down tools and then see what everyone's been working on, and again, just be inspired by by um, new stuff. Yeah, it's really important, really important. It's a tried and true model a lot. Most studios have yeah. a version of that, you know, starting at the top from Pixar, which has the entire, you know, they have a cinema program. Yeah. I mean, that's extreme example. But, you know, a lot of the stuff that gets shown in MIAF is a film that was made in a studio as a way of kind of either recharging the creative batteries yeah. for people that were working on something much larger. Exactly right. But so what would be the games version of the side project? How might that look? Well, you see, in, in research, the uh, projects are so small that they yes. are in principle only side projects. And in a way, that's kind of a, a good thing because um, you don't work on a game for three years and, uh, and you only made one character as part of that game for this time or, or you know do an aspect of it as in the games research you do the whole thing so you've created freedom on the whole project and then uh, you see this through to the end and sometimes we work with other people and so we don't really experience that kind of a, a burnout that you get if you work on a long run another reason to pursue a research career <laughs> through the Imagine program <laughs> while we're here, <laughs> uh, other than to hear from our fantastically knowledgeable guests. So on that note, I would like to thank Kylie, Kelly, Malcolm and Stefan for coming to